Welcome to Truly Creepy with Brittany and Sarah. You know, there's one thing that I really, really, really don't like, and that is hearing strange noises come from within the house when I'm home alone. That is really creepy. That happened to me a little bit ago. Me and the kids heard the um, garage door. Do- like, it, well, at first it kind of felt like, why did my change? Okay. Wait, does the garage door open? Did you like fix that? Uh, well, we did, and then it went off the hinges again. But, uh oh, are you still there? Yes, I took. I turned my camera off. Okay, <laughs> which means nothing to anyone else because you guys don't know that we're. <laughs> I just saw it go blank, and I was like, "Oh no! Oh no!" Yeah, no, it was doing that weird thing on my end where it was being choppy. Oh, okay. Um, it, so it was the door to the garage. Like we heard it, and oh, it sounded okay, so like, like the actual like house door. Yes, and it sounded like it closed, and we all looked down the hallway, and there was nothing there, and so I texted Brandon, because he was in the shower, and I'm like, hey, like, you know, hey, did you get out of the shower, and he was like, no, I'm still in the shower, and I'm like, oh, that's strange. Just texting you from in the shower. He keeps his phone on top so he can listen to music. Okay. Interesting. Also, can you see behind me? Your two creepy dolls. Yes, I can see them. Brandon made me a uh, shelf for my dolls. I like it. For, I like, it. I like uh, that say. Oh, thank you. His aunt, aunt, aunt. Oh, it's very pretty. Well, thank you. Yeah. Oh. So uh, now that <laughs> we've caught up a little bit, and um, now I'm going to ruin everyone's day. So, you know, that's uh, what we're doing over here. <laughs> uh so in my last episode i covered the mad butcher of kingsbury run and i mentioned the case of the black dahlia in there and said that it had been theorized that they were linked and i'm gonna tell you about it and i'll let you guys decide what you think um i will go ahead and say i don't think that they're linked but mm, i'll let you decide what you think All right, so it was January 15th, 1947 in sunny California. It was a bit chilly since it was January, but it was still California, so it was probably only like 70 degrees. (laughs) Yeah, right. They're chilly. Yes. Um, Betty Bersinger was on a morning walk pushing her two-year-old daughter in a stroller through Lemire Park in southern Los Angeles. As she was walking, she noticed what she thought was a mannequin just off the sidewalk in one of the vacant lots. This neighborhood was still being developed. Unfortunately, Betty had not found a mannequin, but the gruesome scene of a woman's naked body cut clearly in half at the waist. Once Betty realized what she was looking at, she took her daughter and ran to the nearest phone to call the police. She's like, traumatizing. Uh, Yeah. When LAPD arrived on the scene, the first thing that investigators noticed was that despite the body being severed at the waist and the victim's face being cut from ear to ear in what we now refer to as a Joker smile, there was absolutely no blood at the scene. The 
Victim's body was nude, completely drained of blood, and posed in a sexually suggestive position. It appeared that the body had been dumped at this location, and this baffled the investigators and led to quite the media circus. Uh, during the autopsy, the coroner found that the cause of death was numerous lacerations and a hemorrhage on her head due to multiple blows to the face. While sections of her skin had been whole sections of her skin had been completely removed from the victim's body uh, around her breast and thighs, and the body was severely mutilated. There were rope burns around the neck, arms, and legs, and the body appeared to have been tortured before death. It was also discovered that the body had been thoroughly cleaned before it was dumped. The hair was freshly shampooed, and the body was scrubbed with a bristle brush so vigorously that some of the bristles were embedded in the skin. Oh this God. led investigators to believe that the killer was probably obsessed with cleanliness. And writer Lawrence P. Sherb II said that this was the worst case of a sex crime in the history of Los Angeles County. Uh, the LAPD brought in the FBI to help with the investigation, and less than an hour after becoming involved, the FBI had identified the victim as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short um, at Hollywood Hopeful. The FBI got blurred fingerprints sent to them from Los Angeles through a sound photo, through a program called Sound Photo, which was an early version of a fax machine. Sound Photo. Never heard of that one. Yeah. Neither had I, and I tried to, like, look into it, but it wasn't very clear. Just, like, a really old fax machine. Um, they were able to use the fingerprints that were sent to them, even though they were blurry, and they were identified as Elizabeth Short. At the time of her murder, the FBI had 100 million fingerprints on file, and Elizabeth Short's prints appeared twice in their system. One of the times that they appeared was when Short had applied for a job as a clerk at the commissary of the Army's Camp Cook in California in 1943. The second time her prints appeared was from seven months after she had applied for the job at the commissary when she was arrested for underage drinking in Santa Barbara. Oh, fun. So I'm a little confused on this because, like, this is what one of the articles said, and, like, the FBI said that they had her prints from this time. But she didn't move to California until six months before she was murdered in 47. And I literally just connected this, like, right now as I'm reading this, <laughs> that this is um, saying she was there in 43. <laughs> well, maybe she was there on vacation or something. Maybe. Maybe she had, like, applied for a job to try and move there and then didn't end up moving until later on. I mean, that seems kind of plausible, but that is still a little sketchy. Yes, yeah, so now I'm super confused. But <laughs> and I like typed up all these notes. I've read them like a dozen times and just realized <laughs> the inconsistency in that statement. <laughs> so with her arrest for the underage drinking, they had a mugshot on file and compared it to the body and were able to say, yes, this is her. This mugshot was also given to the press and run in all the papers, which I feel like is in poor taste, but what do I know? People were so weird when it came to, like, murders and stuff back, like... Well, especially the press. Yeah. So even with the identity, the newspapers still dubbed Elizabeth as the Black Dahlia, and it was front-page news for months. As Elizabeth's childhood friend Mary Facio said... 
And I probably pronounced that wrong, even though I told myself I wasn't going to. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the headlines made it seem almost as if it were a justifiable homicide. And I agree because the sensationalizing and the victim blaming for her murder are sickening. Some of the headlines read things like the Black Dahlia who proud Hollywood Boulevard and tight skirts and sheer blouse and just things like that that made it seem like it was her fault that she had gotten killed they're basically like slut shaming her pretty much well they named her the black doll yeah because her hair was black she liked to wear black clothes and black lingerie and that's where that name had come from so they basically just ran with this whole thing so who was elizabeth short Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. She was the third of five daughters born to Cleo and Phoebe May Short. Her father, Cleo, had abandoned the family when Elizabeth was only five years old, and not much else is known about her early life. But by her teens, Elizabeth had set her sights on becoming a famous Hollywood actress. Just six months before her tragic murder in the summer of 1946, she had moved to L.A. to follow those dreams, but as many who chase stardom know, it's much harder to attain that goal than it appears. Elizabeth has been, Elizabeth was having a little trouble finding things to get her career going. Uh, She had very little luck in finding jobs in the field, and it appeared she had turned to sex work to make money to get by not long after she had come to California. The last few days of her life are hard to track because she seemed to constantly be moving in the short time that she lived in Los Angeles. She appeared to have moved around a lot, never staying any more than a couple weeks in one place. And with this, she met lots of people and was in contact with thousands of people. And when she came up dead, the police needed to look through all of these thousands of people that she knew and interacted with, which made their job pretty hard because it could be any of those number of people who had been responsible for her death. Uh, The FBI continued to support the LAPD in their investigation by doing record checks and conducting interviews on anyone they believed could be involved. The last known sighting of Elizabeth was at a diner in San Diego when she was seen leaving with a man she called Red. Witnesses didn't get a very good look at the man, but said he had reddish brown hair. Some believed that this man was Robert Red Manley, a traveling salesman that Elizabeth had been involved in. This man, uh, Robert Manley, had been questioned by the police, and he admitted that he was married, but he'd picked Elizabeth up on a street corner on January 8th. They'd spent the night together in a hotel but he swore that he dropped her off very much alive on January 9th at the Biltmore Hotel. Police gave him two polygraphs and even had a female reporter, Aggie Underwood, from the Herald Express talk to him. I guess they thought maybe she would be able to persuade him to confess. Um, This didn't work, however, and he passed both polygraph tests and his account of dropping Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel was confirmed, as was his alibi for when she was found. Hmm. It was believed fairly early on that the murderer would have a high knowledge and skill in dissection and was probably in the medical field due to the clean dismemberment of her body between the second and third vertebrae. This led the FBI to investigate a group of medical students at University of Southern California's medical school. Unfortunately, this led them nowhere. 
they pretty much ended up back at square one again. <laughs> uh, decades before the Zodiac or BTK were writing into newspapers to gloat about their murders, there was the Black Dahlia Avenger. This was probably the first instance of a killer living out his fantasies in the press while taunting the police in the process. An anonymous letter believed to be from the killer who was dubbed the Black Dahlia Avenger by some hmm. had sent a letter to the Los Angeles Examiner nine days after Elizabeth's body was discovered. Investigators were able to lift a print from the letter and had high hopes that that would be able to be matched to fingerprints in the FBI system, but it was never matched to any on file. The package contained Elizabeth's personal belongings, including her ID, address book, social security card, and birth certificate. There was also a note written using cutouts from movie adverts to form the message. The message in the envelope read, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. Oh, so after, they're getting cocky. Yes, so after this, 12 more letters were received, but only this first one is believed to actually be from the killer. And this is the closest that they ever came to finding her killer. Um, all 13 letters were investigated, but no leads were ever formed and nothing brought them any closer to finding her killer. And in a weird twist, nearly 50 people came forward claiming to have committed the murder. And this just caused the investigators more trouble because they had to go and investigate those leads. And that took them away from potentially being able to find the actual culprit. <sighs> That is so frustrating to me. It blows my mind that people falsely confess to committing crimes like this. Like, that just... It's so wild. It is so wild. And y'all can't see how much I'm, like, vigorously shaking my head, but... There was lots I... of forehead rubbing happening as well, just so you guys know. <laughs> I just... I just... I don't... I don't... Why? Why? Like, why would you want to have... Why would you want like, to take credit for something that you didn't do that is so horrible right exactly Ugh. i don't i don't get it okay move on before i just trigger myself <laughs> even more unfortunately the case went cold in the 1950s when there were no solid leads so this left many unanswered questions who was elizabeth short really why would anyone want her dead and there are three theories that i kept coming across in my research and so I'm going to go into those. The first theory was covered extensively on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And Lawrence Sherb, who I mentioned before about how he said this was the worst case of a sex crime in L.A. County history. Mm -hmm. He's a reporter and he believes that he knows who committed this murder. Okay. So Sherb started looking into the case and found that it had many similarities with the torso murders in Cleveland, which I covered in my Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run episode. And the those murders were drifters and sex workers. The bodies had been dissected with expert precision, uh, very similar to the way that Elizabeth Short was discovered. Uh, the Cleveland murders happened just nine years before Elizabeth was murdered, and like I mentioned in that episode, Elliot Ness believed he knew who that murderer was, but was never able to get enough evidence to arrest him. And his suspect had checked himself into a mental hospital voluntarily not long after being interviewed by 
uh, Elliotness. Mm-hmm. So this suspect was called Dr. X, and no one really knows who he was. They think they might know, but they weren't entirely sure. And the murders in Cleveland stopped after this man had checked himself into a mental hospital. However, he did receive that letter, or Elliot Ness received that letter saying that it was from the killer and he was in sunny California now, and that he was going to be performing experiments on his guinea pig victims in L.A. Now, remember, I said that they were never able to connect any murders at that time when that letter was sent. Yeah. That were similar to the torso murders. And in that letter, the doctor or the killer referred to himself as a DC, which is a doctor of chiropractic. And he said that he felt bad about operating on all those people, but science must advance. And this is where people are drawing the connection between the torso murders and the Black Dahlia. That letter that came from L.A. claiming that he was experimenting on people in L.A. now and had moved away from the Cleveland area. But he could have just uh, been saying that. Like, that could have been total BS. Exactly. Exactly. And they were never able to connect any murders that were similar to the Cleveland torso murders. So I'm not sure that there actually is any connection but like with the black dahlia being cleaned there were connections some of the victims in cleveland had been attempted to be cleaned remember there was that uh weird solution on several of the bodies that appeared to have been like a cleaning agent of some sort Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you know they do have that similarity but i don't think it's the same like i don't know it doesn't seem like enough to me to be like Okay, it's the same person. So, according to Unsolved Mysteries, it says that Elizabeth was dissected with a butcher knife, and butcher knives were used to decapitate and dismember the the victims of the Cleveland murders. I have not seen anywhere else about it being specifically a butcher knife, just that a sharp knife would have had to be used to be able to sever her between the two vertebrae and that it would be need to be someone with extensive knowledge of the human body. Um, and on Unsolved Mysteries, they also mentioned how Elizabeth had appeared to have been tortured, how she had rope burns. And they said that she, the victims in Cleveland also had these marks, but I don't ever remember hearing anything or seeing anything about victims being tortured. Because remember, they pretty much didn't have any of their features that would help in identifying most of those victims. Yeah. So I'm not sure that we would even have known if they had marks on them to be able to say that they had been tied up or anything like that. Um, Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to remind you that I don't think these two cases are related. This is a theory that... Lawrence Sherb has come up with it is completely sold on. If you watch the episode, he is like undoubtedly cannot sway him. Um, on Unsolved Mysteries, they post the question that if it, the man Elliot Ness believed was responsible for the murders was locked away in an Ohio mental hospital, how did murders continue throughout the Midwest and eventually in LA? And I will re- again say that they were never able to find cases similar to the ones 
in Cleveland until Elizabeth Short. This question was answered by saying that since the suspect had voluntarily committed himself, he would have been free to leave the facility at any time on his own free will. And they believe that's exactly what he, he did. They think that he was using the mental health system to hide when they start when people started to suspect him of things. They think that he was committing these crimes and then he would check himself into a mental hospital until things blew over a little bit and then he would check himself out and move to a different place and continue doing it over and over again. Wow. That's that's kind of makes me angry. And which I think it's a great theory. It's totally possible if they could link him to other murders. Yeah, that too. And since Elliot Ness never revealed the name of the suspect he believed responsible, no one was ever able to identify this person or track this person to see if it was possible that this one person could be responsible for this. But if it was one person committing all of those crimes, they would be the most prolific serial killer in American history. And we don't even know who they are. Wow. So Unsolved Mysteries only focused on that one theory. Okay. The whole episode was basically Lawrence Sherb trying to t- convince everyone that these two things were linked. I'm not convinced. I don't know if anyone else is convinced, but I don't think that there's enough to link the two of them together. I think the torso kill- the torso murders were completely different. Like maybe this one was kind of a copycat of that. Yes. Which I feel like we said at the end of that episode when I mentioned yeah. the Black Dahlia. Um, I think in the torso murders, they were finding bodies in bodies of water, in dumps. They weren't just like out in the open for people to find them. They this one felt very much like it. they wanted it to be found. Yes, it was very, in- it seemed to be very intentionally placed. It was like near a neighborhood. And I just, I don't see how they the only thing that potentially connects them is that letter claiming that he moved to California. That's and not this enough whole theory to make any is kinda, based on that. Yeah. There's so I don't buy it. Maybe some people do. I don't know. Feel free to let us know if you think I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the second and third theories are covered in a cold case files episode and i'm going to specify that it's a from the classic series of cold case files because now there's a new series that just started up a couple years ago mm-hmm. and in this episode they talk to several different people who are involved in this case now um they talk to larry harnish who's an la times reporter and he has one theory on this case and they talked to steve hodell who's a former lapd detective and the author of the book black dahlia avenger and he has a separate theory from the one that larry harnish has and then they talked to detective brian carr with the lapd who in 2006 when this episode aired was over the case file for the black dahlia and doesn't believe any of the other theories <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so they talked about how when the leads into the people in Elizabeth's life had dried up, they started going and looking into Elizabeth herself to see if maybe something in her past could uncover what happened to her. And that's mm-hmm. 
And then this episode is where they talked to her childhood friend, Mary Posios. <laughs> and Mary was Elizabeth's neighbor growing up, and she described her as Betty, is what they called her. And she was a small town girl who wanted to escape the poverty, born into Depression era New England. And the last time that Mary had talked to Elizabeth, she said that she was going, when she made it in LA, she was going to send for Mary, which I just thought was like a super sweet thing (laughs) for her to say. And Mary had pictures of them growing up and that they showed on the episode. And uh, so the first theory I'm going to talk about is Steve Hodel's theory. Now, remember, he was an LAPD homicide detective, but now he's retired and he wrote a book on this case and the theory that he believes. Uh, He spent seven years working on the Black Dahlia case. He never worked on it when he was part of LAPD. So the seven years he spent on it have been since he left the force. And he believes that he solved it and he believes that he knows who the murderer is. Brace yourself. Oh, okay. Steve Hodel believes that the murderer is his own father, George Hodel, who was a prominent L.A. doctor in the 1940s. Okay, okay. I think I know (laughs) this. I know this because they interviewed him on Ghost Adventures. Yes, because Ghost Adventures does talk about the Black Dahlia. Yes. So in his book, Steve Hodel lays out his case to support the claim that he believes his father, Dr. George Hodel, murdered the Black Dahlia. When his dad died in 1999, Steve discovered a family photo album, and after flipping through several pictures of the family, he came across two pictures of a woman clearly taken in the 1940s. And Steve thought that the pictures looked vaguely familiar, but couldn't place it. He didn't know who this woman was, and then it hit him. He thinks that this woman bears a striking resemblance to Elizabeth Short. And in the episode, he shows these pictures to uh, Bill Curtis, who hosts Cold Case Files. And Bill said he wasn't immediately convinced that it was Elizabeth Short, but he was willing to be convinced. And I think there's some similarities, but I don't think that specifically these pictures are like in your face. Oh, my God, they're Elizabeth Short. And so Steve Hadell has been using new technology to further his case on this. And with advancements in technology, he was able to take pictures and pieces of evidence that were made public from the Black Dahlia file and compare them using this new technology. So he took pictures from the autopsy of Elizabeth Short and pictures of her when she was alive and compared these photos to the photos in the photo album that he had found. And he used freckles on Elizabeth Short in her pictures and in pictures in the photo album and was able to identify three specific freckles in the same location on both pieces of photos and believes that this says that the pictures are of Elizabeth Short and they went through showing the comparisons side by side of where the freckles were like there was one above an eyebrow there was one on the nose and they used those and that's what he believes compares the two of them together and so that was his first point was the two pictures he thinks are linked 
to Elizabeth Short. His second point is the letters that were received by the press and the police that are claiming to be from the killer. And he said he looked at the picture of the letters and he noticed the handwriting as his father's handwriting. Hmm. And you can say that lots of people have similar handwriting, but when I see my parents' handwriting, I immediately know it's my parents' handwriting. Oh yeah, me too. That was like That's my something first thought. that you just you recognize anywhere. Yeah. And so he actually believed this so much that he wanted to get an expert opinion on this and sent handwriting samples of his dad's and of the letters that had been received to uh, the National Association of Document Examiners and examiner Hannah McFarland, who is a handwriting expert, agrees that there is a close resemblance between George Hodel's handwriting and the handwriting on the letters supposedly from the killer. So Steve Hodel has gone through all of this, spent seven years doing all this research. And he even thinks he knows how his dad committed this murder and where he committed this murder. He thinks that his father committed this murder in his childhood home where his family lived. So now this home is used as a TV and movie backdrop in Los Angeles. It's called the Franklin House, but it was once home to the Hodel family. There were secret rooms and an interesting layout that would have allowed George Hodel to dissect Elizabeth Short in a bathtub in one of the bathrooms, wash the blood down the drain, clean her body, and move her directly to the garage with no one seeing him. In the 1940s, there was nothing around this house. It was completely isolated. They had no neighbors. LA hadn't exploded the way that it is now, and so the houses weren't all on top of each other. When asked why, Steve Hodel says that he believes that his father, who like he loves and adores and still says that he loves and adores, even though he thinks that he committed this like truly heinous <laughs> crime, uh, he, he was asked why. And he said that his father loved surrealism and that he used Elizabeth's body to create a piece of art at the dump site and that he was inspired by his good friend surrealist artist Man Ray and Steve even believes that when Elizabeth's body was placed his father emulated several of Man Ray's photos in the placement of her body and that the Joker smile that was given to her was in emulation of a photo that Man Ray took of lips and it's very similar they compared the two of the way the lips looked as opposed to the way the cut on her face was and you could definitely see the similarities when compared side by side with the different pieces that he believes were being emulated in the placement of her body and Steve gave a preview in of his second book that has since come out, but was not out yet when this episode aired, uh, that he may have DNA evidence that links his father to at least two other murders besides the Black Dahlia. And if he links his father to those murders, that would make him a serial killer. Uh, Steve Kay of the LA County DA's office believes that he may have wiretaps from inside the Hodel family home that connect George Hodel to the Elizabeth Short murder. And they are called a second set of books is how it was referred to in the show. And it's a file that the LAPD doesn't, well, they do now, but they didn't know it existed 
that the district attorney's office had done a separate independent investigation into the Black Dahlia murder without even telling the LAPD that they were doing it. In 1949, a grand jury directed the district attorney's office to investigate the Black Dahlia case independent of the Los Angeles Police Department. In the files, the name and face front and center as their biggest suspect was George Hodel. Hmm. So even back in 49, they thought that George Hodel was responsible. He first came on their radar as a possible suspect in the Dahlia case when in October of 1949, he was charged with incest by his 14-year-old daughter, who is Steve Hodel's half-sister. And during the trial for that, there were statements made by witnesses that possibly linked the doctor to the Black Dahlia murder, and this caused them to decide to do this independent investigation. He was acquitted of the incest charge, but the suspicion of him being involved with the Elizabeth Short murder was out there, and the DA's office brought him in to question him, and while they were doing that, they wiretapped his house. So they have over 100 pages of transcripts, and a lot of it sounds very incriminating. The transcripts have about a 1,000 hours of recordings of George Hodel, and there are things that are recorded like, I'm in trouble, do you suppose we could hire some girls to figure out what they're doing? And the really big one, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They couldn't talk to my secretary because she's dead. Sounds pretty incriminating to me. And Uh, somehow nothing ever came of this. He was never cleared of suspicion, but they also never talked to him other than the one time that they brought him in when they were doing the wiretapping. They never investigated him, so he was never cleared, but he was never officially deemed a suspect either. And so Steve Kay is retired from the L.A. County's DA office, but he's reviewed this file that they have on him, and he says that there's no doubt in his mind that George Hodel is the killer. So he's like fully on board, fully supports Steve Hodel's, you know, claim that he thinks his dad is the killer. And Kay mm-hmm. even pointed out that incriminating statement about supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. And he said, now, if I didn't kill someone, I'm not going to be saying supposing I did. I'd be saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't even know them. Like, <laughs> yeah. good point, Mr. K. Good point indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For real. And so Steve K believes that between the evidence from the DA's office and the case that Steve Hodel has brought forward, that the LAPD should move forward and admit that George George Hodel was the killer. Uh, But he doesn't think that they will, and I agree with him. Uh, The detective in charge, Brian Carr, doesn't believe the DA's office would ever actually file the charges on the evidence that they have, and he says that he's unimpressed with their evidence and pretty much calls all of what Steve Hodel has done junk science. He doesn't believe in handwriting analysis and thinks that Steve Hodel just has an agenda and says that his case is weak and the evidence, he completely discounts it. He thinks that the handwriting on the wire transcripts, because they are handwritten, is old and handwritten. Well, my dude, in the 1940s, that was kind of how things worked. 
Yeah, they you didn't had to have like things. electronic. Exactly. The tapes for those had to be, you know, tapes because that's like the materials they had to work with back then. And like, please insert my eye roll because the whole time this man was talking, that's all I was doing. <laughs> and he was very quick to dismiss everything about this theory. And I think it's important to remind you that Steve Hodell himself is a retired homicide detective. So I think it's funny the detective Carr would say that he like doesn't understand how the how investigations work and how putting together pieces of evidence work and stuff like that, considering like that's what he did for the yeah. LAPD. And not to mention that the LAPD is notorious for mishandling pieces of information and mishandling murder investigations you know just see every single serial killer that was active in southern california ever to see how horrible they were at their job and apparently still are <laughs> and so my question is could detective Carr be a little salty about this retired detective in the da's office solving a case the lapd hasn't managed to solve in almost 80 years possibly think it's probably a pretty good chance yeah so the third theory is from la times reporter larry harnish and he actually thinks that it's laughable to claim that all of the letters are from the killer he pretty much has said other than the first one the rest are a hoax and a crackpot and he doesn't believe that dr george hodell is the killer What's he does suspect that? well he does suspect that the killer is a doctor and he believes that he knows who it is so let's buckle up for this one because it's a ride oh boy <laughs> so larry hardish began looking into the black dahlia case when he was assigned to write about it for the 50th anniversary and it was supposed to be an update article and he believes the only true letter from the killer is the one with Elizabeth Short's belongings that was sent, you know, though like week or so after her murder yeah. to the LA Examiner. Yeah. Which I think is like that one definitely has to be from the killer. It has to be. It had her it stuff. It has her like, stuff. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> so if any of them are going to be from them, killer, I would say that one is definitely it. Yeah. And he actually was able to find some of the movie adverts that the killer had used to make that note, like these specific ones from the newspapers. Hmm. And he showed them to Bill Curtis on this episode. It was wild. He like went back through the archives, was able to find where like the different pieces had been cut out from like di the different articles and stuff. And so I thought that was like really neat. That is cool. And that's like quite the in-depth, you know, I'm sure Jump that took a for, while. Yeah. I can only imagine how long it would have taken him to go through all of that stuff. And he talked to, Larry talked to criminal profiler John Douglas, and he focused on the location of the body and said that if Larry could figure out what it was about that neighborhood, that it would tell him who the killer was because he picked that spot for a reason. Mm -hmm. He would have had to know that it would be easily found that it would you know that yeah. spot would probably be very important to the killer and he would have a reason for picking that area 
So the location of where the body was found was near 39th Street and Norton Avenue, and the neighborhood was still being developed at the time of the murder. So she was found at a vacant lot, but it was very close to a housing development. The housing development just wasn't finished yet. So he spent months trying to figure out what the significance of this neighborhood would be, and he couldn't find anything. He said there was nothing remarkable about the area, nothing that just screamed, this is it, this is why it happened, until he discovered the marriage license for Elizabeth's sister. Now, that probably sounds pretty absurd, like a marriage license for her sister, like what does that have to do with where her body was found? Well, when you get married and you sign a marriage license, you have to have witnesses. And one of the witnesses on the marriage license was named Barbara Lindgren. And Barbara listed her address on this marriage license, and her address was just one block from where the body was found. Interesting. Now, I don't believe in coincidences, and apparently neither does Mr. Larry here, because (laughs) he grabbed onto that and he ran with it. (laughs) So uh, Larry and Bill Curtis went to the L.A. County Hall of Records to look for information about the history of the property at 3959 South Norton Avenue, the address Barbara Lindgren had listed on the marriage certificate. Mm-hmm. And a Ruth Bailey owned that house on Norton Avenue, and she was the mother of Barbara Lindgren. So they then searched the archives to see if they could find any mention of a Ruth Bailey in the newspaper. And what do you know? An article on January 21st, 1948 was found that mentioned her. Now this is like... Huh just over a year after Bar- after Elizabeth's body was found, that this article is published. Huh. So a Walter Bailey, a surgeon, was also mentioned. And there appeared to be a dispute between Walter Bailey's wife and his girlfriend. Supposedly, the girlfriend had learned some secret about him, and he lived in fear that she would expose it because it would ruin both his personal and professional life. Hmm. Unfortunately, we don't know the secret because the girlfriend never revealed it and everyone is long gone, so we don't know what that secret is. But could the secret be that Dr. Walter Bailey murdered the Black Dahlia and dumped her body just one block from the home on Norton Avenue? Potentially. (laughs) We may never know for certain, and for Larry Harnish, this evidence is where the trail ended in his investigation. While Larry Harnish doesn't think that he solved the case, he does think that it's unlikely that he's wrong. He very strongly believes because he found a suspect that has a link to the short family, Mm -hmm. has a link to the neighborhood where she was found, would have the knowledge and ability to dissect the body in the way that it was dissected. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it's a pretty strong case. I mean, I don't know. I'm not really convinced. See, there are holes in the theory, though, because there's no evidence linking Walter Bailey specifically to Elizabeth Short or that he had any reason to kill her. Yeah. My whole thing, I just, I feel like the theory before this one, and I don't want to, like, butcher their name, but, like, if the the son, 
Yes. The son found quote unquote potential pictures that they presume is her. Mm-hmm. To me, I feel like if he's taking pictures with this woman, then he has to know a little bit about his her personal so life. So the pictures were only of her. It was They're two only pictures. of her. Okay. Yes. It's two pictures of this woman. That's so strange. So he didn't ha- so Walter Bailey had no reason to kill her. They don't even know that he like knew her personally, just that his daughter knew Elizabeth's sister. Um, but it's the only theory that has solid links between the suspect, the neighborhood, the victim. Both George Hodel and Walter Bailey are dead, but we can still obtain their DNA mm-hmm. and compare it to DNA from the case to see if there's a match between either of them. But in true LAPD fashion, all of the evidence from the Black Dahlia case has mysteriously disappeared and no one knows where it is. No one knows Of course. No one knows how it disappeared. So we have two very solid suspects whose DNA could be linked to the DNA from the package because remember, they got DNA from the package that they know is from the killer because it had her personal belongings in it. But somehow, poof, it's all gone. No one knows where, how, when, but it's gone. Can I bang my head up against the wall now? So Detective Carr says that Steve Hodell hasn't seen the papers on the case that the LAPD has. He's never seen the case file. He just knows what was made public. He knows what he has found. And when asked why he wouldn't just show them to him, Detective Carr said because he has an agenda. And Bill Curtis, real MVP here, called him out. He said, no, you're saying you don't like him. And he said, I don't know him. But the look on Detective Carr's face was like, he just went there. (laughs) He was shocked. He claimed that he didn't know Hodel. They had never worked together. He had never even heard of him until the book came out accusing his father. But I think Bill Curtis is onto something here. I think Detective Carr is on the defensive about the whole thing. I mean, someone lost the entire evidence file that could solve this case. And that looks really, really bad. Yeah, it does. And he also said that because of the book, other detectives who've worked on this case before have reached out to him and said that they're really upset over Hodel about this. And when Bill Curtis asked if they had explicitly told him not to show Hodel the case file, he said, no, I think they'd rather me prove him wrong. And when asked why he didn't do just that, Carr said, because I don't have the time. I have other cases to work on that have evidence and may actually be solvable. Well, excuse the fuck out of me, Detective Carr, but isn't that your damn job? (laughs) That's literally like you had one job. (laughs) Is it your job and your responsibility to find the time to work on cases that you are assigned all of them, not just one of them, but all of them, and to figure out if you are able to solve them. I mean, now, forgive me, because I'm just a bitch with a microphone, but maybe if you shut up and did your job, you'd actually be able to, you know, prove Hodel wrong or whatever it is your ego wants you to do. But personally, I don't think he wants to work on this case, because what if he can't prove Hodel wrong? And what if he has to eat his words about the whole thing being a joke and about how he... Hodel not knowing what he's doing or what he's talking about. 
I'm not saying I'm convinced George Hodel's the guy, but unless you want to back up your claims with actual detective work, I don't really think you can have an opinion on what someone else has spent years investigating when you just admitted that you haven't. I feel like he doesn't want to because part of him knows that he's going to be wrong. And so he just doesn't want to put in the time for someone to throw it back in his face. So he'd rather just look like an idiot and say that he doesn't. Literally, he's saying that he doesn't do his job. Like, oh, you, I'm you want sorry, me to be you a You don't detective? have time to give people answers. That's what a detective. Like, your whole job when you are assigned a case is to work on that case. Yeah. So find the time. And I think he just doesn't want to be proved wrong by a journalist or a retired detective. Instead of being happy that someone else might be helping you solve this case that's been going on for years and years and years, you're going to get butt hurt because you don't want someone who's not in your profession to prove you wrong. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry, do a better job. It's your job and that won't happen. Exactly. Like, how hard would it have been for him to find the information that Steve Hodel and Larry Harnish found? If someone who's not a detective can find it, he absolutely could have found it. And, like, yes, I acknowledge the detective Carr wasn't even born when this happened, so he's not the only person who's ever worked on this case. But in 2006, when he made these statements, he was the detective in charge of this case. Wow. Wow. And while we may never be able to close this case, and the Black Dahlia is, you know, one of the most infamous cold cases. Yes. And like a lot of the cold cases that I have talked about, because apparently I really like them. (laughs) It may never be solved, but I feel like we have two really solid theories. Yes. If somebody would just do the work. But since all the evidence has disappeared, (laughs) that's like so, that's so frustrating to me. That to me sounds, it sounds, that to me, my first thought is like, cover-up exactly lapd knew something and they didn't he went on the defensive when getting questioned about where that evidence went exactly and he went on the defensive about showing the case file yep so something because in my experience when you want to solve a cold case you are willing to look at anything and everything that may lead you to what you're looking for you're not gonna be sketchy and oh Oh, well, I really don't want to show you this. Or, oh, look, oops, oopsies. Oh, oh, that evidence is just, oh, man, it's gone. Like, no. You know, just the LAPD doing LAPD things. (sighs) But the Black Dahlia case still has a great interest in armchair detectives and true crime hobbyists. Probably because we are so intrigued by the unsolved and the unknown yeah. And that's what makes it so alluring to us. But could that interest help solve this case almost 80 years later? It would sure help if they had some evidence left over. It would sure help if the LAPD ever did their job. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Stranger things have happened and cases have been solved by Internet warriors. So, you know, and well, we've solved lots of cases with DNA evidence. And, you know, if they could somehow find the letter that had the evidence on it. Yeah, that would that would be a good uh, that would be ideal, you know. Yeah. So 
Now that I ruined everyone's day and we're all really frustrated now because LAPD. Um, (laughs) Excuse my wheeze cough. I don't know what is going on today. Oh, it's fine. But I'm sure, (laughs) I mean, Elizabeth Short was one of five kids. I'm sure that she has, you know, siblings, nieces, nephews that probably want to know what happened to her. And it would sure be real good if. Uh, yeah, they could find something to support that. Now, I couldn't find anything more recent than all of this. Um, I don't know if Detective Carr is still on this case since that episode was from 2006. And, you know, we're what, like six years past that? Or, yeah, no, we're like 15 years past that. So, yeah. 17 years so I don't know who's on that case now. I don't know if they're even paying it any attention anymore. But when That's you look at sure. those other two cases or those other two theories, I think that the torso connection is obsolete. <laughs> it, For sure. It doesn't hold up whatsoever when you see the other two theories. No, not at all. I completely forgotten about it, honestly. And you do. You completely forget about it when you look at the actual evidence. Yeah. And possible connections that are made with Dr. Walter Bailey and Dr. George Hodel. Yeah. Because the other person is this person. We have no idea their true identity. We have no idea if they ever left the middle hospital. We have no idea anything like that. And we have these two doctors who we can pinpoint. We can put them in L.A. at this time. We They were prominent. They have suspicions of things. You know, Walter Bailey had... Some secret he was terrified of people finding out. George Hodel has wiretaps potentially connecting him. Like, the theory of this mysterious doctor that haunted Elliot Ness until he died, you know, it doesn't hold any actual weight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Once once you look at the other two theories. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you guys think? I lean more towards Hodel just because of the wiretapping and the very doctors are smart and for the most part they're pretty put together they know how to speak they know how to convey themselves so Mm -hmm. with him saying oh like suppose I did like he knew what he was saying He's in his house. He doesn't have to hide anything. He doesn't know that he's wiretapped. That one, that's just, mm-hmm. that sticks out to me. It does. Now, how, now, being friends with her sister and it being in that area, like, that is also a little weird, too. Well, and them having a house that's, like, a block from. But at the same time, it could be just a coincidence that it was a block away. Like if this is a newer part of LA that's getting built up, I feel like someone would use that spot to put a body because there's going to be construction workers around. There's going to be people walking like that's going to be an area that's going to be very well seen. So that might just be a crazy coincidence and homeboy just got caught all up in that and he has nothing to do with it. And he has some other, you know, detrimental secret. It it could be literally anything. 
I mean, what is detrimental to one might just be chump change to someone else, you know? So it's, I, I sway more that way, but I don't know if it's because that was the first theory that I've ever heard of this case or if, I don't know, I just, something feels more off about that theory. Yeah. I mean, both of the doctor theories hold a significant amount of weight, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure which one I lean more towards. They they both have enough evidence on either side to where you could be like, well, it could be that. Or, well, it could be that person, too. Like, they both yeah. seem very exactly. viable when it comes to a suspect. And they definitely completely wash out any idea of it being connected to the torso murders in my opinion oh yeah for sure there's just no way a theory about a person who only elliot ness knows their real identity and he didn't bother sharing it with anyone else and took it to the grave just you know yeah doesn't make any sense to me yeah me either me either But it would be interesting to hear what our um, listeners think. Yes, I would love to hear what everybody else thinks about it. And if you want to share your opinion with us, you can do so by going to our Twitter, which is at truly underscore creepy. We have our Instagram, which is at truly, is it truly creepy podcast or just at truly creepy? At truly creepy, I'm pretty sure. But let me double check that. (laughs) Honestly, you could go on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and just search it's truly, just truly creepy. At truly creepy. Any of those places, search our name, we pop up. We also have our email, which is truly creepy podcast at gmail.com, where you can email us, say hello, listener stories, literally anything. You can reach out to us on any of our social medias with any questions, concerns, corrections, stories, <laughs> what, whatever. Just whatever. be nice if you're correcting me, okay? I'm sensitive. Uh, me too. Me too. We're, we're, we're kind of sensitive. We're like the squonk, okay? Don't make us go into a, a puddle of tears. We, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your critiques, but be nice. Nicely. Nice, nicely. Constructive criticism. And we also have our Patreon where you can sign up and become a patron and get the episodes early and get some behind the scenes videos as long as well as some behind the scenes podcasts and different things that we have done. We have some things still in the works for that. It is a work in progress. So thank you to everyone that is a patron and thank you to anyone who is going to become a patron. We appreciate all of you guys and thank you for listening yes thank you and as always keep it truly creepy bye